What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. More Maryland residents are armed in public now, but you may not know it. Ever since the landmark Supreme Court decision on the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin case, residents of Maryland have had a much easier time getting concealed carry permits approved. This explosion of concealed carry permits in our region comes at a time when mass shootings are up and continuing to rise every year, and concerns about guns is also going up. So what does this mean for Maryland and our region at large? For some answers and understanding, we turn to Cassandra Krafasi. She's a PhD and the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. Cassandra, welcome to the DMV Download Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's really good to have you back. You know, last time you were on this show, the Supreme Court just made a ruling on the Bruin case. And a quick reminder for those who kind of forget, it was a landmark gun rights ruling that really expanded the rights for people to conceal carry. It had ripple effects across the country, though the case was kind of focused in on New York. You know, I did a brief overview, but do you mind kind of giving us an overview of that case? Sure. So the question in that Bruin case was really centralized around whether states have the ability to apply a discretionary lens to issuing a concealed carry license. So there were individuals who were applying, they met all the objective criteria, but the state said you need to have a good and substantial reason to be able to carry in public and use that to deny um, otherwise potentially qualified applicants. And so the Supreme Court said, um, not that you can't require a license. In fact, you can still require a license for concealed carry, but rather any denial needed to be based on objective criteria and removed that discretionary piece. Mm, So less of a subjective characterization, more just like laid out, you know, line per line, what can bar someone from having a concealed carry permit. So since then in Maryland, you know, we had a law here in Maryland that kind of had that subjective ruling to bar someone from getting a concealed carry permit. You know, since that ruling, so many thousands, I think it's 125,000 people have, you know, asked for concealed carry permits. Is that something that surprised you? Are you shocked by that number or were you expecting that? Not surprised at all by that number, to be totally honest, knowing how many people were previously denied because they didn't have a good and substantial reason. I honestly thought the number was going to be a little bit higher. Mm. Um, But I think one of the important things about Maryland's law and and several of the other states who lost this discretionary piece, there's still really high standards to get a concealed carry license in Maryland. You have to meet higher criminal background check standards than you do just to own a gun in the home. You have to undergo safety training. And actually, Maryland requires that you uh, shoot a paper target with 70% accuracy. Oh, wow. So some states just say, can you safely handle a gun? Maryland says, no, actually, you have to demonstrate at least in a controlled situation, some kind of proficiency. And so that does potentially limit the number of folks who could actually meet those qualifications. Um, so I, I wasn't surprised, but but honestly, it could have been even, an even higher number. Right. And it's up from around 40,000. So again, 40,000 in July 1st, 2022 to now, you know, in and around 125,000 people with these concealed carry permits. What does it mean? What does that big number mean for, you know, public safety? Just having more concealed carry guns out there? Does it make us less safe, more safe? Do we know? 
The evidence generally shows that when you make it easier for people to carry guns in public, we see harms to public safety. We see increases in crime and violence. When you go to the most extreme version, which is not the case in Maryland, but when you go to the most extreme version where you allow people to carry a loaded concealed gun in public without being required to get a license, it's called permitless or constitutional carry, we actually see even greater harms, including increases in law enforcement officers shooting civilians. Because when we're introducing guns into more spaces, altercations and interactions that otherwise might have resulted in a verbal discussion or even maybe a physical altercation now may be more likely to result in serious injury or fatality because of the presence of a firearm and firearms are exceptionally lethal. Mm. And since the Bruin case, again, we've been seeing this number, 125,000 concealed carry permits. Just recently, the new governor of Maryland, Governor Westmore, you know, has enacted a law that adds kind of more objective restrictions to getting that concealed carry permit. You know, within hours of that bill being signed into law, lawsuits have been kind of thrown at it from the NRA, the National Rifle Association, and other kind of local gun rights advocacy groups. You know, what does this latest law really do and why is it being pushed back against? So it's really focused on making sure that the right kinds of prohibiting conditions are applied for carrying guns in public. It's a very different level of risk to have a gun that I have and may use in the home versus carrying one around in public that's loaded where I might be exposing other people around me to risk. So this policy was about making sure we had the right prohibiting conditions. It was actually done in conjunction with a lot of stakeholders, which is one of the reasons it made it through the legislature and was signed by Governor Westmore. Um, But it's also about thinking not just about people. Are there people who have backgrounds that might make them too risky to carry guns in public? But it's also about are there particular places where we might think as being too risky for people to carry, in particular places where alcohol might be served or places where large groups might gather, in some cases, private businesses, where we want to give people a greater sense of security that when they're in these places where, particularly knowing the association between alcohol and violence, where there might be alcohol served or other types of risky interactions, that we're we're not additionally exposing people to loaded concealed handguns. And in other words, do you think this law from a public health perspective, because that's really your you know area of expertise, do you think this law signed by Governor Moore would make Maryland safer? It certainly has the potential to. It all comes down to implementation and making sure that we are applying the law equitably across the population um, and really holding people accountable when they violate the law. Um, far too commonly, things that are, are seen as potentially sort of low stakes are, are kind of dismissed. So I'm going to provide a, a tangential example for a minute and then sure. I'll come back to this. So when you apply to buy a firearm uh, or when you go in to buy a gun from a federally licensed dealer, you fill out a 4473, you put in your information and you have to check a bunch of boxes attesting that you are not legally prohibited from purchasing a gun. If your background check comes back denied, meaning you lied or provided misinformation on that form, That's a federal offense. We almost never do anything with that information. This is an individual who's prohibited from owning a firearm. They've attempted to buy one. That's a a violation of federal law. And very little is, if anything, particularly at the federal level and even at the state level, is done to hold those people accountable and keep them then from maybe acquiring one from a private seller or through some illegal market. 
So circling back to this particular case with thinking about where people might be able to carry some of these sensitive space restrictions, if we have this policy in place, but when people are carrying in places where they shouldn't because we have decided it's too risky for people to carry concealed firearms, and then they're not held accountable for that, that sends the wrong message and, and makes this policy really have no teeth. So it's going to be about holding people accountable when they are violating the policy. And that may have some potential to contribute uh, to making Maryland safer. Mm. And when I was reading kind of the statements from the NRA and some of those advocacy groups who are pushing back against this new law signed by Governor Moore, one of the things they brought up was, hey, look, you know, Maryland is one of the more restrictive states when it comes to gun you know, use and gun laws, but there is a high level of gun violence you know, in the state. And that kind of bucks a national trend. Why is that? And how do you make sense of kind of that phenomenon where it doesn't really match up? So a couple of important points there. One, Maryland actually is on the lower end of the total gun death rate. If you if you stratify states by their gun death rates, states with the highest rates of gun deaths tend to be places like Missouri, Mississippi, Louisiana, Maryland falls on the end of the graph that where we have actually much lower hmm. gun death rates than a lot of other states. It could be lower. Absolutely. We need to be doing more to address violence. But I think it's sort of a People focus solely on Baltimore, but Baltimore alone is not driving gun death rates across the U.S. or even in Maryland. And so it's important context to remember Maryland actually is doing quite well when you look at other states across the U.S. The other really important thing, states with strong gun laws like Maryland are at the mercy of states with weak gun laws. So Maryland can have every single policy that we might think could be evidence based, but that is not going to eliminate all gun deaths, unfortunately because borders are porous by design. People and products move across them. Mm. And if you look at the guns that are recovered in crime in Baltimore City, we did an analysis shortly after the handgun qualification license was passed in Maryland. The guns recovered in crime in Baltimore City are actually far more likely to come from outside of the state. Mm. They were coming from places like Virginia, Pennsylvania, Tennessee. And this is true for many states with strong gun laws. The guns being used in crime are actually coming through interstate gun trafficking because local sources of crime guns are quite scarce. And one other critique, you know, I, I've seen is, look, you know, criminals use ghost guns sometimes. The guns that are used in crime are sometimes beyond the pale of regulation. So why regulate, you know, law-abiding citizens? Is there a response there? Yeah, I think um, if we applied that sort of framework or that logic to any other type of crime, people would laugh. People still murder each other, so why are we regulating law-abiding citizens? You know, criminals are still going to go off and murder people. That like that that just logic doesn't really hold. Um, and and to the contrary, we actually know that these laws work. We know that strong laws like strengthening background check systems through requiring people to get a license before buying a gun is associated with fewer guns being diverted for use in crime. When you ask people involved in the underground gun market what impact requiring people to get a license has on on the local sources, guns are more expensive, people are not willing to engage in straw purchase, and they specifically cite Maryland's requirement that people who want to buy a gun get a license first. So having that stronger accountability can actually make it harder for people who shouldn't have guns to get them. That's sort of our internal policy work. And then we need to be thinking about regional and national approaches 
to make sure we're strengthening our systems overall. So again, states like Maryland with strong gun laws are not falling to the mercy of states with weak gun laws. We've been hearing from Cassandra Krafoski, a PhD in public health and the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. Coming up, we'll talk about kids who are increasingly and tragically dying from gun violence in this country. We talk about why this is and how you can keep your family safe. Stick around. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Now, moving to a different part of this gun violence conversation, it's really a tragic portion. Over the past few years, you know, ever since the pandemic, it seems that children are more involved, either the victims of or sometimes the users of guns in very violent and deadly situations, be it carjackings, be it stray bullets. What's going on here? And is it just a seeming thing that the media's picked up on? Or are we seeing a real trend, upward trend in children being involved in these awful incidences? It is a, a real trend that we're seeing, and it's actually started um, a couple of years before the pandemic, where uh, we see a shift overall in guns killing more people than cars, for example. And when you look really specifically at kids, firearms are the leading cause of death for kids age zero to 19. And this is a really important impact that we're having. And it's not just um, incidents in schools. Um, it's also young people finding loaded and unsecured guns that are being unintentionally used to harm themselves or others. It's about easy access to both traditionally made firearms and ghost guns that can kits that can be ordered online, where then our young people are, are exposed to, to firearms in a, in a variety of situations. And there's a good body of research showing that when a gun is in the home, the risk of homicide and suicide increases by at least threefold because guns are, are such lethal products that when they're used, the likelihood that that person will die is, is very high. Mm. And so we're seeing increased exposure, despite the fact that probably more people who are listening to your podcast see a car every day. We have more more kids dying from guns than we do cars. And it's a real troubling trend as we're seeing increased exposure. And do we know, it's hard to know the exact origins of anything, really, but do we know the exact origins of that? Is it just, you know, there are more guns out there, therefore there's more chances of kids getting their hands on guns? Or is there some, you know, mental break, cognitive dissonance between locking up guns and having them, people just less safe? Do we know that exact origin? We don't know the exact origin, but you named a few of the contributors that we think might be responsible during the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw at least 7 million new gun owners. So there was a lot of gun purchasing happening, a lot of people who previously owned guns buying more, but many people who had never owned guns before also bought them around sort of fear and uncertainty during COVID, after the murder of George Floyd and sort of unrest. Um, there were a lot of concerns about how people might be able to defend themselves if needed, and many folks turned to firearms as an option. And in pretty much every state, uh, with very few exceptions, Maryland being one of those exceptions, 
first-time gun purchasers aren't required to undergo any kind of safety training. Mm. So folks don't learn safe handling and use. They don't learn about the importance of safe storage. And we know prior to the pandemic, around 5 million kids lived in homes with loaded and unlocked guns. And with many, many more people buying them uh, in the context of the pandemic and concerns around self-defense, that number is likely much higher now. Uh, which is likely contributing to uh, more children being exposed and therefore more children being injured and killed with firearms. Now, you know, another aspect here is I saw a report in the Associated Press just a few days ago. You know, they basically created a theoretical child and started, you know, clicking through videos. And that theoretical child was shown violent videos where guns were involved you know, just by just kind of moseying around the site. And it, it raises a question of, is social media contributing here? Is social media, you know, introducing gun violence to young children when they really shouldn't be? It's a really great question. And there are far smarter people than I who study the sort of impacts of social media on youth and child development. But I will say uh, early exposure to violence and, and firearms is likely not a positive experience for young folks. But there's social media, there's YouTube, there's violent videos, there's violent video games and movies in other countries across the world. They just don't have that same easy access to firearms that we do in the, U in the U.S. We're unique in our rates of gun violence, partly because we're unique in our civilian access to guns. Mm. And if a child was exposed to all sorts of violent videos, not that they should be, but if they were, yet they could not possibly gain access to a gun, that's a very different situation than in the U.S. where they may have very easy access. Mm. In other words, the increased access, despite the origin of what, you know, gets you to get a gun, the increased access just increases, you know, the number of people who can use them and maybe have, you know, awful effects. Absolutely. We've been talking a lot about many things, really, access to concealed carry, you know, gun violence among children. But there's also just broadly across society, in the U.S. at least, increased gun violence. We've seen mass shootings. We've seen shootings in schools. Um, the headlines are full of, you know, gun violence. And a part of the conversation we haven't had yet is, you know, mental health. You know, in your studies, what role does mental health play in here when someone has a gun and they're going through a health crisis? How does that interplay? So the research on sort of the intersection of mental health or mental illness and firearms um, really shows us that for the vast majority of individuals who have a mental health issue, uh, they're far more likely to harm themselves than others, or the, and they're far more likely to be the victim of a crime. So even if we had perfect um, mental health services and perfect sort of everyone takes their medication and everyone undergoes the treatment that they're supposed to take, we might reduce interpersonal violence by about 10%. So it's not really the driver of interpersonal violence that politicians and the media really like to play it up to be. Mm. What it comes down to is we have individuals who may be angry, frustrated, hateful for a variety of reasons. The, the, um, one of the recent shootings, the individual had white supremacist ideals, um, Nazi-related tattoos and paraphernalia, was posting racist and, and other sorts of things online. Mm -hmm. That hate tied with easy access to firearms makes that hate far more lethal, makes that hate far more violent. And certainly one could say you had to have been mentally unwell to engage in this kind of act, committing a mass shooting, harming someone else. 
Um, and certainly we are seeing people frustrated and angry and hateful, but that does not necessarily translate to a diagnosable mental illness. And I think it detracts us from the real conversation, but it should also be a yes and. Yes, we should absolutely be attending to our mental health shortcomings that we have in the US in terms of access to treatment, access to resources, et cetera. But we also need to be talking about the tool and that's firearms and that makes that mental illness or hate and frustration much more lethal. Gun violence, as you mentioned, really has uh, exploded on the political scene as well as, you know, the the media you know scene. Just recent polls showing gun violence are top of the list for people as far as their, you know, daily fears, just going about their lives. You know, the supermarket's not safe. The school's not safe. If you're a listener and you're sincerely worried about this, how do you go about, you know, being safe, making your community safe? It seems so big sometimes. We at our center have really been focused on what are things that individuals can do? You know, thinking about thinking back to the things we learned during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, what are individual actions folks can take to feel safe and secure? And part of that is being engaged in the political process. Whatever your thoughts and perspectives are on this issue, reaching out to your elected officials, making those thoughts known, really being activated is important. But if you are a parent of kids and you're sending your kids to another friend's house to play, asking, do you have guns in the home and are they stored safe and secure? Are they unloaded and locked up separate from ammunition? And if you're not comfortable with the responses, suggest hosting the play date at your house or meeting outside or in some other public location. If you had a kid with a peanut allergy, you would have no problem asking hey, don't give my kid peanuts or make sure they wear a back bike helmet or make sure they have a seatbelt in the car. Rolling it in with other safety topics is really important because too many kids are finding loaded and unsecured guns. And as uncomfortable as it might seem, the very simple question of do you have guns in the home and are they stored safely can prevent that kind of tragedy from happening. Mm. In other words, you know, it might be a big conversation in like the political and news media sense, but welcoming that conversation into that personal, interpersonal, you know, daily life kind of places is needed. And when we look at support for various policies, when we get really specific, we actually see really broad support. To your point, it feels politicized. It feels based on the, what politicians say and what we hear in the media my gosh, I can't ask if you have guns in the home. We don't agree on this. This is, you know, this might ruin our friendship. Mm. In actuality, a lot of gun owners actually support laws that require people to lock up guns when they're not in use. Mm. Over 60% of gun owners and over 60% of Republicans think that's a good idea. So it's far more likely that this would sort of start a very productive conversation and get that person thinking, gosh, you know, maybe I do need to think about the way I'm storing my firearms or you know, when I send my kid to someone else's house or when I host kids here, this is something I want to make sure that I bring up also and really normalizing it the way over the past several decades, we've normalized conversations around, you know, taking a friend's keys if they've had too much to drink, mm. things like that, where we're changing some of the social norms around this topic. Is there anything else that's on your mind that you think is worth you know, sharing here? I would just encourage people, you know, it can be very challenging to feel optimistic and to feel hopeful when these shootings continue to occur. Mm. And it feels like, how could we possibly come up with a solution? But we can look to the states that are in the U.S. right now with low rates of gun deaths as a path forward. We know that there are things that work to reduce gun violence, and we need to really focus on common ground. Where are there things that we agree on 
that we can move the needle forward to make progress. And I really hope that folks don't feel too pessimistic about this issue because we really do have solutions right now that we could put in place. Cassandra, as always, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And before we go, here at WTOP, we actually had an active shooter training put on by the FBI's Violence Reduction Unit. After the training, I found it very helpful. So I brought two of the FBI agents into the studio to really talk about the basic principles that could really save your life in an active shooter situation. FBI analyst Stephanie Samoska says step one is always being aware of your surroundings. It's a lot about knowing your options. So when you walk into a room and you walk into one door, well, then look around and be like, well, is there another door out of here or is this my only choice? Um, check out the windows. Are you on, What level of floor are you on? Are, um, are the windows um, shatterproof or not? Some older buildings, especially in the D.C. area, you might be able to break through. Some you may not. My exits are my first option. Okay, great. But then what's my second option if I can't get to an exit? How can I use this space to save myself? And during the training, they showed us some pretty concerning stats. Since 2018, active shooter situations and incidences are really trending upward nationally. But FBI Special Agent John Skillset said what will keep us most safe is being ready and not anxious. You need to be prepared, not paranoid. Bad things can happen, but it doesn't mean that you can't survive one of these things as long as you have the ideas, the concepts of run, hide, fight as your basis for your planning. You know, if you're ever faced with danger, the concept is run first, if at all possible. Hide if you must, and, you know, your ultimate uh, defense is to fight um, because this could be, you know, something to save your life. And one of the bigger takeaways I had from this training is if it does come down to fighting, which is the last resort, there's really only one way to fight an active shooter. You control the weapon, you control the shooter. And the idea is that this is a fight for your life. This is not, you know, this isn't fun and games. This is the ultimate sacrifice and that you have to take in trying to preserve your, your livelihood. To be sure, this is a cursory overview of a two-hour training that I went through. If you're curious and want to know more, you can go to fbi.gov backslash survive. And you can even ask the FBI, the same team that trained us here at WTOP, to come to your community or workplace for a full two-hour training. It's definitely scary stuff, but after, I did kind of feel more ready if, you know, tragedy were to strike. And that'll do it for us today here on the DMV Download Podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening. And if you have thoughts about this show, let us know. Give us some stars and reviews on your favorite podcast platform. You can also hit us up on social media. This show is brought to you by WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, and 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland. Have a great week. We'll talk Wednesday.